You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's guest who is actually a referral from a previous guest of ours and somebody I consider a very good friend and one of the better people in the veteran space. Uh, You probably know his name if you're anywhere tied to the veteran space, but he's an outstanding human being. His name is Garrett Cathcart. We'll get to him. That's not our guest. That's my friend who connected us with this guest who's got an interesting story to tell because Garrett was part of that deployment as well. We'll get to that coming up in just a moment. First, please continue to follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground, at Hazard Ground Podcast as well. Leave those Apple reviews. Keep them coming. Help grow the Hazard Ground community. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. Doesn't have to be a lengthy review. Just a couple of great words on why you love the show. We certainly appreciate it. Continue the promotion with Amazon. Uh, You guys are doing a fantastic job. Go to our website, hazardground.com. Click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all your normal Amazon shopping, get whatever you need, whatever you want. Uh, We'll get a percentage of what you guys spend, then we'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations heard featured here on the show. Uh, Also works from your smartphone. If you go to hazardground.com, it'll redirect you to the app. So if you save all your credit card information on on your app, uh, it's really user-friendly, easy and convenient, and a great way to help out veterans charities all across the country just by going to hazardground.com. Dot com first. This week's guest is a former U.S. Army member, uh, retired Sergeant First Class, spent nearly 20 years in the United States Army before he was medically discharged. Uh, tried several times to work his way into the special operations community, but ultimately fell short. Deployed to Iraq in 2006 and led 189 combat missions on that single deployment, and it led to him writing a book titled Damn Hooligans about his experience. He was David Hollis joining us here on the hazard ground. Dave, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. And it's an honor of knowing, uh, looking over the previous guests that you had. So, Well, uh, the honor is all uh, with Garrett Cathcart, and I hope he's watching and listening to this. Um, Garrett is, is a great friend, and he was your PL on that deployment. Uh, and Garrett is, is one of the most notable people in the veteran space, uh, has worked in this whole space since he left the military and has been a, an incredible advocate for all of us. So uh, if you don't know Garrett, look him up. And again, go back and listen to his episode here on the Hazard Ground. So he tells you his personal story uh, that you are closely tied to uh, in Iraq in 2006. And uh, like I said, before we started recording, you and I might have crossed paths uh, without knowing it at some point in time, because Taji Iraq was a was a fun place back in the day um, during the rise of all the violence in Iraq before the surge, you know, that, that, those were the good times. Those are, those are the fun times before, you know, we had to put 140,000 people in there, but we digress. Nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless. your career starts way back in the early nineties. Uh, tell me how and why you got in. So let's see, I was uh, born in the seventies, grew up in the eighties, you know, so all of my exposures were like GI Joe cartoons, Rambo movies, Oliver Stone's platoon, and then it seemed like every Friday Arnold Schwarzenegger was putting something out that had guns and explosions. So all of that stuff was very attractive to me. And then um, in 1991, during my junior year of high school, or January, February, Desert Storm happened. And uh, 24-hour news being new, you know, we kind of get to watch the whole war 
you know, phase by phase live on television. So the, all of that put together was really fascinating to me. It was exciting. It drew me in. And then my senior year, still at age 17, a buddy of mine had gotten a pitch from an Army Reserve recruiter and came to me and says, hey, this is a great deal. You know, college, guns, be in the woods, backpacks, camping, all that stuff. It'll be great. So I, I went with him, signed a contract to the Army Reserves my senior year of high school. And he turned out he had asthma and couldn't even sign up. So. <laughs> ah, great idea for you. Just not for me. Wonderful. Um, that's great. So did you even know what you wanted to do when you signed up for the reserves? Do you have any idea what you wanted to do in the army or you just took the first thing available? Well, that's the hard part. Like, um, and I, I hate to say like, like regretting, I, I try to, to go without regrets in life, but you certainly have things when you look back on your life, you're like, Oh, I could have done this differently or I could have done that better. You know, it's got you know, like an AAR you would have on a mission. So I believe I would have been, better off in infantry. But the problem with the army reserves is you're limited to the, what unit is within this the radius of where you live. Right. So my, this happened to be a combat engineer unit, 12 Bravo, which actually, I mean, I ended up liking it, but I wasn't like, like fully excited about it. Once I found out like, Hey, this is going to be your job. But, I mean, it was still rucksacks and rifles and, you know, a bunch of explosives. So it had all the cool stuff involved in it. But, I mean, with reserves, like, you're, you're not getting any cool guy stuff out of that. It's, there's nothing sexy about the Army Reserves. <laughs> I'm probably going to miss the the, the uh, recruiting slogan, there's nothing sexy about the Army Reserves. But um, so, so you end up, though, uh, later on getting – on to active duty, how and when? Yeah, so graduated in 92, started college, and then um, by 1993, you know, none of that was really working out. So it was like uh, active duty is the way to go. So even going active duty, I wanted, I when I went in, like, I want to be in infantry. And they're like, it's not going to happen. You already have an MOS, that's the one you're going to be. So I'm like, all right, whatever. So I took it. And went in and spent a couple of years in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri with a, I don't know, a unit that really wasn't assigned to anybody. It was a force comm engineer unit. And then uh, in 95, went to Korea. So that was my real first taste of what the, the Army is, 2nd Infantry Division in Korea. About 13 clicks south of the DMZ there, Camp House. I don't, I don't even know if Camp House is still in existence. So, so many changes have happened over there. Yeah. Um, and so you're, you're kind of on this, you know, year tour to Korea. Uh, I mean, was there any part of you that was regretting going to the active force? I mean, you just had, a, uh, you know, started a family again. You have two kids now. I mean, like, were you thinking that maybe this wasn't for me? No. So at this point, like, I'm loving it. Okay. Like, once I got, I got the Fort, Fort Leonard, it was like a nice little taste of it. Because like, I I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. You know, I wasn't, I didn't really know what I was getting into, but getting there, I had great leaders, great squad leaders, great platoon sergeants and, you know, the mentorship that they provided really kind of pulled me in. And by the time I got to Korea, I'm like, I'm staying in. Like, I, I fucking love this. So. So 
after Korea, what's next? And and again, all this is is pre nine eleven. So you're just like, kicking it and garrison, okay. hanging out and collecting. Well, a that's the beauty of of a, of a trip to Korea back then. No combat. The wall had come down. We're kind of friendly with Russia. They're actually drawing down the military, which looking back on that, the drawdown there was a benefit to it. Um, you have fewer soldiers, then you have to raise the standards for those soldiers to, to perform. So in Korea, as that drawdown was happening, you're watching guys, guys kicked out that are overweight or that are failing PT tests. And just to get promoted from E3 to E4 was a competition every month. So they're looking at rifle qualifications, PT scores, 12-mile road march time. All of that stuff gets added up into who's going to be the one specialist that gets promoted in the battalion this month. So yeah, those, those are the good old days when making E5 was hard. And I don't say that to denigrate anybody yeah. in E5 now, but uh, I remember being a lieutenant on active duty and uh, the four letters that scared the hell out of every E4 were PLDC because you did not get promoted unless you went and passed. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and they took it seriously, yeah. you know. So it was uh, where were we? different times. <laughs> <laughs> um so you but it, it's crazy because you end up actually getting into an infantry unit eventually correct yeah and it was by a fluke so korea the training and like the benefits of that it's live fire all the time like there you don't have families there so all you're doing is training constantly like we were in the field all the time live bullets we're on the range every week so good hard training you know, in a, in a non-combat time. So while I'm there, I'm in love with the Army. That's all I want to do for the rest of my life. I re-enlist, and I chose the 10th Mountain Division solely because I had watched what had happened in Somalia in 93, you know, through television and stuff. And, and uh, while I was in Korea, I, a buddy in part, he ended up being a really good friend of mine had come to our unit from 10th Mountain Division who had been in Somalia. So I got to hear all these stories and he, you know, he's like, this is a great unit and I'm going back there as soon as I'm done here. So my, that was the best influence I'd had to where I want to go next. I was like, so I reenlisted 10th Mountain Division, showed up there in late 1996 and still, you know, pre 9-11. So it's still all training and it's all training all the time, but. I've got guys, like leaders in the unit that were from 7th ID, Panama veterans, Gulf War veterans, Somalia veterans, you know, tough, experienced guys that were in charge. So it was a, that was a good time, and that was another place that I, I didn't want to leave. I had uh, been there for a few years. Oh, the infantry unit. So we're gearing up to go to a peacekeeping mission in, e- in Egypt, and uh, – they had to build the battalion out to larger than it was by, um, how was it, by MTO standards. So they added squads to some of the existing platoons and added a whole company on the outside. So I actually was lucky enough to get put into one of the organic platoons from the 132 Infantry as a team leader. You know, and, and once again, great leadership, you know, and uh, lots of training, lots of live fires, trench clearing. Uh, got put in charge of a machine gun team. So it was great. So you end up, um, you know, uh, 
doing this sort of multinational mission overseas, right? And then when you get back, uh, a couple of different things happen, um, not only from a military standpoint, but from a personal standpoint. Uh, so kind of take me through all that and where it leads you, because obviously, again, we still haven't gotten a 9-11 yet. Yeah. So I get back from Egypt, uh, transition back into my unit, and then um, my marriage is falling apart. And I come on orders for Germany. Is that because you so, had been gone so much? No, I, I like that's a so a divorce is more complicated. I don't think anybody's divorce right. is is sure. so simple that it's one one issue. You know, no, I agree. Listen, I, I, it, it's this isn't about your your necessarily marriage or personal life or anything else. I just was curious if your love for the military and everything had a major impact on you know, uh, why the marriage is dissolved and you guys have decided to go in different directions. Well, I don't, I don't think it helped. (laughs) Fair way to phrase it, right? (laughs) So, uh, so that was going on. And then I had, I'd gotten orders to go to Germany and I had petitioned through my chain of command. Like, I don't want to go to Germany. I want to stay here. Light infantry unit. And I, all right, we'll do what we can. So, I went through the division commander. They signed off. Said, so, "Yeah, if this guy wants to stay here that badly, you know, we'll we'll keep him." And then within not even a year later, I come on recruiting duty orders. So it's like it, it was in that, and there's no getting out of that. Like recruiting or drill sergeant, you you get one of those and you're going. Like, there's, you have to go. Yeah. Well, now it's different, but yeah, back then it was. You know, it was one of those sort of death assignments. You knew at some point you had to take. Uh, so, yeah, you, you didn't get much of a choice. And and the same thing was on the officer side. You had to go either recruiting or ROTC or whatever and, and you know, do that sort of downloading of, of personal information and passing it on to other folks, um, you know, to, to sort of keep the, the, the new people coming in a little bit more uh, ahead of the curve. Right. Yeah. And they, I mean, and recruiting command, they wanted guys that were, you know, kind of they, they were young. They wanted guys that, you know, that expressed that they loved the army and I did love the army, but I wasn't a good salesman of it. <laughs> so I didn't do, I didn't have a successful recruiting career and ended up getting out. I, of the I army. would go, I would go back to your previous statement. There's nothing sexy about the army reserves being a failing recruiting slogan going forward. So yeah, you've proven that you, you, you stink at it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I ended up, uh, I became a little disenchanted with the army at that point with the being forced out on recruiting duty. I, I wasn't doing well. And I was in a great, not a great place to be a recruiter, but a, a great place to live. So they put me in Huntington beach, California. Oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. And then, um, but like if, if nobody in Huntington beach, California in uh, 1999 wants to join the freaking army. No. Yeah. <laughs> So, because there were there were real jobs available. Yeah, that and you know, and the Marine Corps was killing it out there. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, I suppose Coronado they, wasn't that far, right? Yeah, Coronado, and then uh, you know Pendleton down down in San Diego and all that. So they got the the kids there had exposure to what Marines do and what the Navy is doing. You know, the Army was so foreign to them that. Um, like we we really didn't. It was really tough. If you were pulling somebody, it was tough. Sure, sure. <laughs> right. 
So got out and I ended up uh, remarrying. And then. Right, um, so you left the military on your own? Yeah. Yeah. And that was so, just because you, you were you were you bitter? Were you sour? Did you not enjoy it anymore? I mean, or, I mean, you had to know the recruiting assignment was going to come to an end eventually. You didn't want to stick it out. Well, our, so I was single parenting and that, that was an, an issue paperwork wise. You know, I had, uh, didn't have a family care plan or, or anything like that. So, um, and you do have to travel as a recruiter. Like I, I was, I just kind of went into it thinking like, Oh, I'll just, you know, I'll have my house. I'll recruit. I got my kids. I'm not, I've got nothing to worry about, but it was, it was a lot more complicated than I, than I had anticipated. And I, it was, I was just hating it. You know, Right. I need, like, I, like for me, and I was kind of restless. And, and a lot of this is, is looking back on it as hindsight. Like maybe I, like I should have stuck it out. You know, and then I would have got a choice assignment afterwards or whatever. But, you know, young, I was kind of restless and uneasy. So I just threw it in at the end of that term and, and got out. Thought I was, thought I would go, I don't know, just go be a civilian or something, you know. So it was, it was actual an ETS. Like you didn't drop paperwork to get out ahead of time. You just ETS. My battalion actually dropped the paperwork and, and, and uh, it was a year prior to my ETS. So it was a hardship discharge. Oh, like, okay. Got yeah. it. All right. Just, just yeah, make as, it. A, as a single parent yep. with a combat MOS, even though I'm on recruiting duty, they're like, Hey, if you don't have your paperwork straightened out, then go We're for it. But I didn't argue it. You know, I didn't argue it. All right. So how long did you actually stay out before you decided to get back in? I went, before I decided to get back in was only about a month. Okay. <laughs> so, and then, uh, by the time I was back in uniform, it was was ninety uh, something days. So, so you had, had uh, you had mentioned you got remarried. Yeah, I got remarried. I had met somebody as soon as I got out there, and then um, as I was getting out, uh, re- you know, got married, and then I uh, would move to a place just outside, out, a little north of Los Angeles, and then um, it, it, I was selling cars. <laughs> based off of the training that I got from recruiting and in sales. And that was another thing. Like I, I was hating my life. I hated going to work every day, I hated uh, approaching people, trying to sell them a car that they might not have even wanted. Like this is not uh, how I saw my life turning out. So I'd made a decision at that point. It's like, I'm going to go back in the army but I'm going to work and I'm going to train and I'm, and I'm going into special forces and that's it. So it's going to be the end of it. What did your new wife say to this decision? I, she was super, very supportive. You know, at the time she's like, yeah, that sounds great. Do it, you know, go for it You know, do what you got to do. So I went, uh, when talked to a recruiter, it's like, look, I've only I, I said, Hey, I've been out this, this long. I want to go back in, but I want to go back in infantry. And they're like, uh, once again, like, no, you're not going to be infantry. And I was like, okay, well, I'll keep my MOS. And they're like, no, you're not going to do that either. Cause they're, they're, they're full up on go Bravo. So if you want to go in, you got to be either a cook, a supply guy or a scout. And I was, so I was faced with the decision, like, well, I'm going to choose the only one or I'm going to carry a rifle around. 
I didn't know anything about Cav Scouts or what it meant other than I, I knew those guys rode in Humvees a lot and they were, they at least carried rifles and rocks around. So I took it I went to it. I went to, Oh, and the, the shitty part of that one was coming back in with a different MOS. I had to take a grade reduction from E6 to E5. Oh, really? Yeah. So, but you know, in my mind, like now I'm, I'm focused and I have, I have a goal and a vision and I'm like, okay, well, I'll take the grade reduction. And it'll take me, you know, within a year, I'll have it back. It's not even going to be that big a deal. And so drove on. Uh, and then you head off to lovely Fort Polk, Louisiana. Yay. Yeah. You know, that unit that on paper was a, a great concept for that period of time. So it was an entire regiment of light cavalry. So just cab scouts and mortars uh, and engineers all on Humvees. So it, it, I mean, it, they were fast moving, easy to deploy. The problem was they didn't have like all of the Humvees were from the early to mid eighties. All the equipment was junk. There was no budget. Nobody was able to do anything. And, and, we're at a training area that's consumed month to month with uh, JRTC rotations. So we barely even got any time in the field unless we were supporting what was going on with JRTC. So it was, that was a difficult place to be. And like, I think this is building out like, Oh, this guy, you know, he, he's never happy with where he is and he's a freaking whiner trying to get, <laughs> trying the grass is always greener. Uh, but, uh, I think like, looking back on my life, like that's, that's what it was in my career. Like I was always looking like, what's the next better thing that I should be doing than what I'm doing right now. And, and oh, by the way, I, I don't think that makes you a whiner. I think that part of the military uh, culture, one is to always look for what's next, but two, um, you know, everybody knows this. The current unit you're in is the shittiest unit there ever is. And the one that you just left is the greatest unit there ever was. I mean, you know, it's, 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 that's just sort of the mentality of uh, of the military. I've, I've heard people say that for years. Oh, my last unit was so good. My last unit was awesome. You know, it was in this unit. Oh, yeah. This unit stinks. I mean, you know, you're embracing the suck. So it's it, it kind of just goes along with the territory 100%. Um, so where are you on 9-11? You're at Fort Polk, obviously, correct? Fort Polk. And, um, you know, with my focus, like I'm, I'm going to selection as soon as I can get in there. So the benefit of this unit that wasn't going to the field much and didn't have a lot of requirements was I, I had all kinds of time to work out and swim and rock and land nav and just do all of this stuff on my own. Like we were basically just working a normal schedule. We had a few field rotations, you know, our weapons calls, but otherwise I had, I had all the time in the world to have a rock on my back, running, land naving and shooting. So that's what I did. And then uh, 9-11, when, let's see, I just finished PT. I was at home. I showered. I was eating a bowl of cereal and put the news on and saw the second plane fly into the tower. So, and your thoughts were what? Well, I mean, I didn't like. I think in that moment, like, nobody really knew what was going on. There's just been a plane had crashed into the tower and now a second one. And then, you know, and it was just, it was just tons of speculation. 
And then um, it's kind of funny, like immediately after that, the phone ring and they're like, get into the, you know, get to the troop right now. So everybody gathered up. Nobody knows what's going on, but everybody's uh, prepping their equipment and prepping packing list. And, and like, like, this is something, you know, that's, um, and I think by that point, like later in the day, they had already started talking about it. I mean, been a, a terrorist attack and we're, we're gathering it like that. All of that stuff happened really quickly on it. So, but then, you know, you go weeks by like this unit isn't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. 10th mountain division, the unit that I wanted to stay at, they were the first ones, you know, besides special ops guys, but first conventional unit to hit the ground in Afghanistan. So, now I'm there like going, well, you know, that, that would have been my, that would have been my chance to go over there. So. But you also have your sights set on something bigger as far as, you know, going into assessment and selection for, to be a green beret. So when does that happen? That happened shortly after that. So uh, I want to say in this, the following spring, I guess, is when I, I made it into, or got to go to selection. Okay. And that was, um, that's interesting. So like there, like, I'm going to keep talking about hindsight and about looking back over things or decisions that I made or how things happened through this. Cause it's like, that's how it, it just builds upon the next story or the next chapter of my life. So going to selection, it was in the, the best shape of my life. I, had, I built myself up and I, I was fast and I could rock and I could swim and could do everything I needed to do when I got there. This was a, a unique period of selection where they they didn't have team week, and I, I don't know how many you know how many years that that lasted without a team week. But the class that I went through was no team week at all. It was all individual skills and assessments. So, and the the culminating event was this forty mile land nav course. So I had I had built up for this and going through it. You know, of course, it's a grueling hard thing. But I, you know, I'm middle, I'm staying middle of the road the whole way, middle of, you know, I'm in the middle of the pack on the runs, I'm in the middle of the pack on the rucks, I'm in the middle of the pack on the land nav stuff. And, I'm, and the whole time, you know, I'm still kind of questioning, like, oh, shit, am I going to make it? I'm, I'm still here. Am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? And then by the end, this, this is the graduation ceremony, I guess is how you would call it. Uh, one of the instructors is up on a podium with a bullhorn. And he starts calling out numbers of guys to get out of the formation, right? And, and he's and he, he turns and he faces those guys as he, as he's calling out their numbers, and we're left standing behind him, right, in the, in a group. So it's about half and half by the time he finished calling out all the roster numbers, and then he he turns around on the podium and says to us, he's like, "All right, you guys are selected." So, and that that was an you know like. like like, all right, I fucking made it. You know, this is awesome. So this is the way it's going to be. So I go back to my unit and still had to to stay there for a year, you know, before I could PCS anywhere. I, I had just arrived there not, not long before that. So uh, stay there for a while and then um, go to the Q course. And I didn't make it through... Like I I made it, I finished the small unit tactics, but I wasn't like, like you're not, you can't move on to the next phase. Here's a letter. You can come back in a year after you train harder. So um, the issues there 
were, I wasn't meshing with my team well. And I think I would have been filtered out during team week. Right. In that source, you know, like, so that, that's the hindsight piece I'm talking about. Like I was performing fine as an individual, but whenever special operations says it's not for everybody, they don't mean like everybody can't physically make it. You might be physically capable of doing this, but if you're not, if you're not meshing well with your team, you know, and, and you guys aren't working well together, then if you're identified as being the guy that's not working well together as a team, then you're gone. And, and it makes total sense. Like just just say if I would have made it all the way through and I get to a, an ODA and now I'm a, I'm, I'm a liability to the right. team. Right. Let, let me ask you, go back and, and sort of replay it in your head. What would you have done different, you know, knowing that that team concept that cohesiveness was of the ultimate importance i see or was it one of those things where you just didn't wouldn't would never have gotten along with the, that group yeah like, and you know, like maybe was it if it was a different group of guys you might have had a better chance i mean you know what w- w- in hindsight you know let, let it be 2020 what's what's the what are we seeing here maybe so i mean like um so that- the way it worked out was like these peer reviews. Like after every mission, you had to write. Uh, they had a, a a little green cardboard card or a poster board card and a red one. And you had to put one guy's name on a green one and one guy's name on a red one. So how it turns out is I just I ended up being the guy that had the most red cards by the end of that of that phase. So did you get to know. did you get to read what they wrote? No, no, no. I mean. I don't know if I would have wanted to. I, 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 and I really, I don't have a, a great idea of what it was other than, you know, like maybe just minor bickering, like during a mission planning or something like that. So. I, I mean, how disappointed are you after this? Oh, extremely. Like that was an extreme letdown. And, and I wasn't, I didn't deal with it well. I deal with it more like I was mad at at the instructor, right? Who had nothing to do with it at all, you know. So in my mind, I'm holding it against this guy. It's like this guy had something against me, you know. And, and I should have, you know, I should have progressed along with my team. But you know, like oh, everything I'm saying now is that you know that was almost like or that was over 20 years ago. Looking at it now, you know, so put these pieces of your life together as you go along and like oh well you know maybe i didn't belong there i wasn't the guy that should have been there as bad as i wanted as bad as i thought i wanted to be there that wasn't for me i was better served or i was better off serving in a conventional unit you know a ground combat unit so that's where i've had my most my greatest successes so i don't know why i thought that i should have been seeking out something bigger and 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 better you know, you need any good soldiers in the conventional units the same way you need good soldiers in the special ops units. So, yes, you do a hundred percent. And, uh, you know, uh, again, I, I've said a hundred times on this show because I, I was fortunate enough to be deployed in that community, uh, attached to an ODA. Um, you know, it's, uh, 
it, it's definitely not for everybody. Uh, and there are certain people who are outstanding soldiers, outstanding NCOs and outstanding leaders who wouldn't mesh well in that community just because that community is a very tight needle of thread uh, and not everybody fits in it. Now I, I fit in there. Great. Now, like for me, honestly, I think it's like the flip side. Would I have physically been able to, and I'm in great shape, like overall, but like, would my mental capacity have allowed my physical capacity to finish everything and do everything and everything else? And, you know, it's kind of like, but mentally I, I fit in that environment, that world, because it's not robotic thinkers, right? It's, it, it's people who yeah. aren't automatons. They're, they're, they're creative. They're, they, they, they like to push the envelope a little bit and, and look for different things that aren't there. And, and they just see the world through a different prism. And I think that, that that's kind of the reason why I was able to thrive in that environment. All right. So um, you end up actually in Iraq in 2003 or close to it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so after this episode, I go back and I'm in a, a training unit at Fort Polk and third ID. So let me back up a little bit. Afghanistan is going on. And my speculation is that the units that are rotating in and out of there had priority over being back Bogo troops. So you got 10th Mountain, 101st, 82nd, those guys rotating in and out of Afghanistan for a couple of years. So by the time Iraq kicks off, the heavy units that they're going to need to go into Iraq are under strength. So they open up for guys that are in training units whose mission is slow anyway to like, hey, who you know wants to be part of this? Who wants to backfill into it? So everybody, of course, raises their hands and a handful of people get to go to 3rd ID and, and whatever other units. I, w- I went with 3rd ID and got put under the the G4. But the deal was, and and there's another thing that was so disappointing, but I would have done the same thing had I been, you know, in charge of a unit that's taken in guys from another unit. Like if you're not organic to me, then I'm not going to put you in one of my more critical roles. So I end up being put in charge of what I call, you know, disciplinary problems and, and low skill. Like I had some guys from the band and I had some cooks and I had a couple other guys and we got put on a security detail in Kuwait until uh, they got some contractors to take over for us. And then they had nothing for us to do. We pulled a little bit of security at the airport after that was taken down. And then, you know, they started, they started cutting us back out to our, our assigned units. So I mean, was, so you were there, you know, right? Yeah, everybody, everybody wanted to get a piece of that pie, you know, and, and sometimes that that pie had a little uh, chunk of mold on it, I guess. But so after so, this, yeah, that's, my, that's my big invasion story. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, sitting at the airport at Baghdad International at Biop. Um, so. Fate takes a hand again here, and you get presented with another opportunity to rejoin the Special Forces community. So, you know, uh, this one. So the, the the Delta Force guys come around to the conventional units every so often, and they give this big whiz-bang, sexy briefing with videos and explosions and guys rappelling off of roofs and swinging into windows, all of that cool stuff. And, they're you know, and all – 
the E6s and above are kind of like, you have to go to this briefing and, and at least get the briefing. So I went to the briefing and I was like, that sounds freaking awesome. So I went up to the recruiter and it's like, I want to, I want to give this a shot. So he, he was there for another day and we, all of us that wanted to go take a PT test the next day. And then, you know, a, a week or two later, some of us, or I don't know how many of us from Fort Polk ended up getting a letter, but I got a, an invitation to go to a selection. And um, so I took it up and I got there and uh, I think I was just over a week and they really broke me off, man. I like, I can't even explain how tough that is. And the guys that make it through there have got to be machines. So I showed up there and it, surrounded by guys that are obviously, you know, from Ranger Regiment, from Special Forces groups and all that. You can tell by their, their T-shirts or their haircuts or, or whatever. And their legs are like tree trunks. And the land nav course, as they, as they put it, was just it was straight uphill. It, it seemed like it's in West Virginia somewhere in the middle of nowhere, but it's just insane hard. So I'd made it through their APFT and the road march. But whenever it came time for the, uh, the uh, terrain walk and the land navigation course, it just broke me off. You know, and they weed you out like it, like they don't even they don't even wait for you to get tired and quit. They're like, hey, go to the be at this office tomorrow morning. And that's your you're like, hey, you're not going to make it. We got you a plane ticket. You're out of here. Wow. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I'm, I'm just I mean. I, I don't doubt the the physical nature of it, as you had mentioned. I um, I am curious, you know, did you ever were you ever able to stay in touch with anybody who made it through? No, it, that's a funny thing. Like, you're, uh, there may have been a hundred guys or so there. I didn't, you know, I didn't count, but it didn't seem like a large group of of people, and it didn't seem like like nobody was speaking to anybody. I, I remember like there was one pair of guys that were probably from the same unit that trained together, you know, and they, they're best buddies and they, they, they were there together. But otherwise, like it was so solemn, like you go back between events, guys are just on a bunk reading books. And then you you'd go to challenge, like hardly anybody was talking to each other. Maybe a couple of the SF guys knew each other or a couple of the guys from the Ranger Regiment. You know, maybe chatted with each other a little bit, but it was so quiet and everybody was so focused on themselves or what they were going to do to get through. At least my perception of that anyway. So I being coming from a conventional unit, you know, I had no ties to anybody else there. So it was just, it was just me and what, and what I, what I'm capable of doing. And I found out very quickly that it wasn't that. So, uh, so now, now you're over two, uh, as far as trying to crack the code here. Yeah, I take another at SF Q course. I was going to say you're still not giving up yet. You're going back to SF uh, the the, the Q course. Yeah, so I go back, and this like as soon as I hit the ground there, I get I I found out that I made the E7 list, and then it starts eating at my brain. Like I'm going to be on a team, and I'm going to be a a higher ranking guy on the team, but have the least experience. You know, so that really kind of ate at my ego, I guess. And, um, after a couple of weeks, I was just like, you know what, I'm just going to 
go back to the conventional army. I'm going to go be a platoon sergeant, be the best platoon sergeant I can be and give this up. So, I'm, I'm, you know, I gave it my swing, I gave it my shot. And, and now I, I think I figured out where I belong. And that's, and I just back in a combat unit being a scout platoon sergeant. Was there any peace in that for you? I, that was a little bit, that was the kind of the closure of it. You know, like it, it didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't being harassed by my brain anymore that I need to be doing something better. I kind of, I walked out of there uh, content with my decision. And, you know, and you, you hear, uh, it's like, um, don't quit, you know, and, and I believe in that philosophy of don't quit, don't quit, you know, push yourself and try harder and all this. But, I, you know, after all these years of looking back on that, like the not quitting wasn't going to work out for me anyway, because I didn't belong there. It was so was was there any part of you that felt like a failure? Oh, absolutely. Okay. You know, like I I had uh this was my goal, this is what I had set out to do, this is what I've been trained to do, and this is what you know I was physically capable of doing this. Like I wasn't sucking on any of the physical events. It was just a you know, either a personality malfunction on my part, you know, or and then later on, it's just like, it was ego in the end of that is what I, the best thing I can describe is that like, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to show up as a, you know, a noob on an ODA as an E7. So. Gotcha. So you go back to being a Cav Scout now. Uh, you become a Sergeant First Class and you're back in a regular unit. What happens next? So I go to um, Fort Hood, Texas, and I I had tried really hard to stay at Bragg and you know be part of eighty second and that almost, but they were they were still building up. Like so, across the army was this huge buildup of Cav Scouts. So they decided that every battalion or every division needs more of them for whatever calculation they came up with. So in the heavy units, a brigade prior to this would have had a brigade reconnaissance troop, which is only about 80 dudes on Humvees. They've got some, some cool sites and satellite radios and all that. And then um, I think in the light divisions, it was just a, a troop for the division. So everything was expanding out to we're at a, each brigade of a heavy unit now gets an entire troop of reconnaissance and they have a mixed bag a couple Bradleys and a few Humvees and, you know, 20 or 30 guys per platoon. So it was really, it was building out. So I arrived to Fort hood as this transition is happening. And um, thinking that the BRT was, I did, uh, actually the transition started after I arrived. I was thinking the BRT was going to be the place that I should be. So I got in touch with the brigade sergeant major told him who I was and where I came from and where I'd been and what I've done, what my qualifications are. And he's like, you're going to my brigade reconnaissance troop. But then, um, then that transition happened after that. And it became, became it was a full squadron. So the troop expanded out into, I don't know, 500 or so scouts, three troops. Uh, and this so, is what, about 2005, early 2006? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. When, when do you find out you're heading to Iraq for real? Oh, as soon as I as soon as I get there, they already know they're going, and they know 
when you're going. So in December 2000, like this is, it's actually November 04, we going into 05. So December 05, we know we're going to Iraq. And we know that we're going to transition into this larger, heavier fighting force. And we're going to get all of our equipment and everything before we go. So I think we were, we may have been the only unit that got um, issued our up armored Humvees and everything before we deployed. So we drew Humvees straight off the, off the production line, still smell like cart paint, outfitted them with all of our electronics and, and combo equipment and all that, took them to NTC out in California and then deployed from there. Uh, so you get to Iraq in December of 05, right? Um, yeah. And then so you're first, and I think we rolled into Iraq on New Year's Day. So you, dro- you drove all the way up? Yeah, we drove from Kuwait all the way up in, uh, to Taji. And, and each platoon was like we had to escort supply convoys up there. So part it, was, it wasn't just a, like, move in and, and occupy your hooch. Like, we had a mission leaving from Kuwait heading into uh, into our forward operating base. So, uh, Iraq is in full bloom at this point in time. Um, from Kuwait to Taji is probably about, by regular civilian vehicle, what, three, four hours? Um, I think if you get to drive it, like, straight out, maybe four or five hours, but... Yeah, it took us a couple of days to move to move well, this that, equipment. I was going to say that's my next. You know, uh, for those civilians listening, you know, Humvees, even though they can go sixty miles an hour, um, when you have a long convoy of vehicles, not everyone is moving at sixty miles an hour, and things break, and you have to slow down. You have to make sure that everybody can see each other and talk to each other, and you don't get the convoy split. So, you know, what was a four or five hour drive might be a day or two drive to get there, everybody safely, and everything else. Uh, and plus we, you know, drivers have to rest and, and rotate and things of that nature. So, um, when you, when you start this, this drive, I mean, do you feel like it's going to go easy? It's going to go smooth. I mean, what, what are you hearing as far as the amount of enemy contact you may see? So IEDs were the, were the big threat, you know, and then IED accompanied by an ambush, you know, the next level up on that. So we had trained for that, it had been like respond to IED, react to ambush, the, you know, for that whole year prior to it. So we were, we, I was confident as a platoon sergeant, like we, we know what we're doing. We, they were, this is going to go great, you know. So, but like also like you're on edge the whole time because now you're like you, in training, it's only going to be a few minutes, you know, and you know that ambush is coming, you know, you know that. It, within this couple mile drive, we're going to hit the IED at this training site or whatever. So we got a couple hundred miles worth of driving to do at 30 or 40 miles an hour, escorting guys that aren't that don't even, you know, you, there's a language barrier between the drivers of the trucks, the cargo trucks, and then there's a distance between my the point vehicle, you know, and then whoever's in the middle and the, so. Out of my platoon of, we had six Humvees rolling there. We we may have been spread out at two or three hundred yards just by having the trucks with us. So, 
that, that it was more of a logistical challenge than it was, you know, waiting to face the enemy. Right. Did you end up getting there safely? Yeah, I think without uh, any contact. No real contact. Like some some shots were fired shots, from yeah. you know just like pop shots from at us. Like nobody really kind of decided to take us on during that trip. No ID. Like it was it was pretty lucky. Right, actually, to make that whole way with with nothing but a few distant shots fired at you. So you get to Taji, and you guys settle down there. What's your mission? What are you told? I mean, you're responsible for an AO. Kind of give me the lay of the land. Yeah. So initially, we get assigned an area in a, a rural area with some roads that are just like rampant IED placement out there. And it was a it was more on patrol routes. It wasn't it wasn't a supply route. It was uh, west of Taji on some farmland. So we'd spend a couple days or spend a day at these outposts where you park a uh, park the vehicles up or they can have a good line of sight looking all the way down this road and then a little further down it had an interlocking sector watching the roads or watching the road the whole time. And then um, I, as a platoon sergeant was finding myself with nothing to do. Like the guys are taken care of. They've got the food, they've got the ammo, we've got the mission and the squad leaders are running the, the missions. So I, uh, I go, we have to send out what's called small kill teams, which is like a, a mini ambush with a, it would have typically been a sniper. So I had a guy that had been to sniper school, but we didn't have all the equipment for him. So he's got a, an M14, no spotter, M14 with a scope, no spotter. And uh, we put this team together with him, a 203, a saw. And then I I went with them and carried the radio and, and would maintain combo with our commander the whole time. So not... Uh, not what should have been done by the rules of what a platoon sergeant is supposed to be doing, but I had nothing better to do. So I want to go be part of the mission. Plus I get, you know, it gave me an opportunity to teach these guys, these less experienced guys operating at night, you know, by just a three or four man team out there by themselves for, I think we would do two to three days, each one of those observation posts and still no contact out there. Like it, it was you would see something that looked shady and then uh, call it in and then the trucks would respond kind of like a police action. And then, um, so by March of 06, we had picked up a new AO on the North edge of Baghdad. And we're told that uh, one of our other platoons are told to go secure us a site. So they picked us a nice blown out, uh, factory building complex with some walls around it. We set up there and uh, started running missions, and that's where that's where uh, we got busy like, doing what we thought we were there to do. So, well, uh, l- l- let's define busy. I mean, again, you, you had 189 combat missions that you ran. I mean, beyond that, um, obviously the, the operational tempo is going to pick up. The enemy contact is going to pick up. Take me through some of it. So we had a really scored away commander. Uh, the troop commander and um, he set up this great, what he called patrol set rotations between uh, two scout platoons and a mortar platoon that became a patrol element. 
we weren't using them as, as mortars anymore. So each platoon was split in half. So you had two patrol elements from each platoon. So that gave us a five total patrol elements for the troop. And um, set up base there. We called that patrol base. It was south of Taji. So it gets the name Patrol Base South. And your first day out as a patrol element is security at the patrol base. And then your second day out is, uh, was, should have been, it kind of, it, it varied depending on it, at what type of intelligence we got later on in it, but the, the set was to be uh, information gathering. So that's when we're, you're going out on that first day off of security, collect, talking to the locals, seeing what you can pull up about who put out IEDs and where this person might be or what groups that are uh, opposing the U.S. or Iraq forces, where they might be. Just kind of um, human intelligence gathering. And then uh, the third day out should be your mission. That's where you've got the, these guys' names and you're going out. Now, on top of that, like on, instead of gather, outside of us gathering our own intelligence, we're also being fed intelligence from our squadron. So we know about this guy. Go here and get him. So it was a pretty constant if you're either driving on patrol or you're talking to somebody or you're hitting the house. And we try to do most of the hits at night, but sometimes it's just go right now kind of thing. So that's how the missions ended up accumulating is on that end. Some of them would turn into several days worth. So if, if we would have like three or four days that are planned to be out there patrolling, that could turn like, oh man, more than once that it turned into 10 days out. Wow. When do you get to your first uh, actual taste of combat? Oh, it came in little spurts. So, couple, you know, little shootings here, chasing a guy down here, an IED. And, for whatever reason, my whatever patrol I'm with never encountered an IED, <laughs> and I would, I would I would rotate. You know that good uh, thing, yeah. Dave, by the way, just in case you were wondering, it's an overrated yeah. experience getting blown up by an IED. Trust me when I you tell know, you. At the time, you know, I'm so eager to get in the shit. So, right. you know, we're I felt like we're just. We're chasing tracers at night. You know, we see something pop off and we, we load up and we run towards it. And we get there and everybody scatters. And and it was becoming frustrating to me not getting my combat experience that I wanted, you know, and, and in turn just kind of being run away from or being avoided the whole time. So we were trying to be super aggressive. We tried to be in the enemy's face the whole time, which was our commander's policy. If you're in their face, you don't give them time to do anything. So, and we enjoyed that and we moved towards that. So my came late in the deployment where it had, the information had built up and we had, had, while I was on leave, the whole platoon got tangled up in a, a skirmish on this village that was a little outside of our patrol base. And uh, Garrett had talked about it during his interview where uh, they gathered up like, like 20 or more foreign fighters. And then one of them broke loose from his uh, zip cuffs and grabbed a machine gun that the Iraqi police guy had just laid on the side of the pickup truck. And our commander's driver actually, you know, killed that guy 
And then like three seconds later, the whole Iraqi police lit up all of the freaking detainees, just slaughtered the whole bunch of them. So later on, we, we're going into like what they've gotten off of these dead guys, you know, as far as IDs and search some of the houses and found maps and notes and all that. We decided that we would go in and clear a few of these houses and my, as a platoon sergeant, I had the medic and I pulled a couple of guys together and I had a blocking position that I was going to at an intersection. And one of the other team leaders, I think, had a blocking position opposite of that. So there are only a couple of ways into this little village due to the, the irrigation ditches. So if we block both of those off and then go in and uh, the other two squads are going to clear these houses, and pull out whoever's in there and whatever they can find. So on the way to my objective, we're cro crossing, like there's a small rise in the, on the terrain. We're moving through these, like I want to say it's an alley, but the whole stinking village is just built out of junk and trash and scrap metal. So everything was an alley, you know, with random cars parked in different places. So as we're coming up over this rise, and then we see at the intersection, there's a street light lighting it up. But it didn't want to be in the light. But there are also, you know, a handful of dudes there with guns. So I drop down, radio it in, and the only thing, like, so we've got a new commander now. I didn't get into uh, the, the original commander that set us up on these patrols. So he had gotten killed in April. So okay. got a new commander now, another super squared away guy, and he's a he's an infantry guy and uh, aggressive. You know, I was a big fan of of this. Uh, troop commander just on his aggressiveness but uh, when i reported you know guys like my objectives occupied armed guys he just like use your rules of engagement it was i was like okay well shit so the rules of engagement were to uh show shout show or show that you're a show you're shout a shoot. yeah show shout shoot so uh we're laying there we crawl up to the the edge of this IV line, and I was like, and we waited, oh man, and it seemed like, it was probably only maybe 30 or 40 seconds, but it seemed like forever to wait, like, what the heck am I going to do? So I just yell out, like, hey! And then those guys turned and started, you know, and they all just, we got to the cyclic on it, full trigger on that, full auto from their AKs. So we lit those guys up, and they dropped, and then, uh, as I report the contact, another group of guys come around a corner, right into the light. It's like we're being fed bad guys into this. Like fish in a barrel isn't even a, a good enough term because there's maybe 20 or 30 yards from us in the light. We're in the dark, night vision, uh, laser aiming devices, and, and uh, light up the next group of guys. And then while I'm calling in that contact report, a guy kicks out a, a, a gate open right in front of my saw gunner. So the saw gunner lights that guy up. And it was, um, man, he might have, that was the longest trigger pull that I've heard on a saw in my life at that point when he lit this one guy up. So after that, we're waiting, I'm calling it in. And we're getting ready to clear to sweep the objective to clear it of, of the weapons, you know, and, and account for them. And then 
we hear a bunch of guys coming out of the, the woods or, I don't know, I guess it's brush and weeds and shit on the far side of it. So they fire at us and kind of these guys start to maneuver on us like a fire team bounding. And they, they tr- avoid that. They go out, avoid the light on each side, but you know, we can still see them and um, take those guys out. And then it's all quiet. So then we move through clearing the objective, get the weapons all out of the way, get them ready to be destroyed with an incendiary grenade. And then I'm calling it in. And by that time, the mission is rolling up on the, the main objectives. So they're like, destroy the weapons and roll out was, was the last call on that. So it, it ended up being like 20 or 22 dead guys in that intersection. And it's like, they were just running towards us. Like I, I got everything I wanted out of a combat engagement and in, in that one fight, definitely. Well, in retrospect, yeah, you, you got everything you wanted out of it right there because it's a, an experience like, Many uh, people in uniform, they just want to know if they're they're good enough to survive it, right? They just want to know if they got the chops for the whole thing. When you look back on that, um, I, I don't want to use the word enjoyable because nothing about combat in and of itself is enjoyable. But do you do you do you look at that same experience upon with the same favor that it was fortuitous for you? Not at all. So get it now. So now, like when I look back, I could I still talk about it. If I tell that story, there's still a layer of excitement built into it, right? Sure. But it's not a, from joy. So the adrenaline from that, you know, it, it can't even be explained. So if you try to, you can't even compare that to anything else. Like you, you, I don't. You you served in a special operations unit, but so I assume you're airborne school, and that's a parachuting. Mm-hmm. So the excitement that you can get from jumping out of a plane, you know, is one layer of that, but some, getting in an engagement, the excitement from that, there's just the pure adrenaline of it is that. So, but as you were, what you were asking, like looking back on that, that's the shitty part of it. The part that makes, you know, they, if you really d- dig into it is we don't know that those dudes were bad guys. They, we don't know for sure that they were part of an insurgency or anything other than trying to defend their, maybe there were guys that were just trying to defend their village against the insurgents, you know, that are that kind of run around more or less like gangsters. So that is a piece that can really eat it at you if you let it. Are you letting it? I have. Um, I had to reconcile it. I, I think some of it by writing, and you know, and a lot of it by uh, uh, talking to talking to my wife about it. You know, I think just talking about it, coming to terms, like you can, it can be in your head, and you can let that eat at you, eat at your your mind and your and your consciousness and your thoughts and your feelings. But just talking about it and getting it out, I think is helpful. You know, I, I've always had to resign to just one theory because, you know, again, the hypothetical road is a dangerous road to walk down in our situation, right? 
Um, yeah. yeah. Could I have stopped and had a conversation or said halt and not shot? And, you know, what are the consequences? Well, we don't, we don't know the answer to that. We never, we'll never know the answer to that. And you're right. That might not have been a bad guy. It might be, there's been a guy who is like any of us would defend our home. You know, we, we don't know if the guy knocking at our door has malice intentions, right? But we open the door and we don't all stand there with a rifle in our hand. We open the door. So, you know, all those hypotheticals that you think you throw out the window, the only thing I can hang my hat on that I, I put my head on the pillow at night peacefully is that I'll boil it down to as simple a choice as it's either them or me or them or my guys. And from that standpoint, the choice seems obvious. Um, right. You know, and and people who haven't been in combat can choose to try to look through this through a different lens and try to inject morality into it uh, and everything else. But you you just you you didn't live that life, and so you don't understand where your mental mindset is. And 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 you know, this was your your first combat. I mean, you know, it took several times before I had had enough of being pop shotted at before I was willing to negotiate any situation because well. They weren't negotiating when they were pop shotting me. I was just carrying goods from point A to point B. I wasn't out to go hurt anybody, but yet you're you're whizzing bullets by my ears. So it's the same on the other side. That's why I, I think that hypothetical road is very very dangerous. Yeah, and so that an insurgency or fighting against an insurgency, it it the challenge in itself is like you never know who the enemy is anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So. The, the intensity of combat, the trauma that comes from that type of combat is mostly from just a constant stress. Like there's a constant threat on your life and you never know when that's going to come. You know, you know, the IED goes off. You don't, you're constantly waiting and watching for the IED when you're driving around. You're constantly expecting an ambush. You're constantly expecting someone to shoot at you from a rooftop or from an alley or something like that. And when it doesn't happen, that stress was still there, you know. Think- and it's compounding. It doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't go away and start over. You know, yeah. it's not a video game where your life just re-energizes and it goes all the way up. I mean, it's you know, it doesn't. It, it doesn't work like that. So um, that's your first combat experience. Now, obviously, you get to your first loss in combat as well. Yeah. Well, first loss had happened with the commander, but yeah, um, you mentioned that right. Yeah, and then uh, it, it may have been only a month later after this engagement, where uh, we're we're getting towards the end. We're we're a couple months out from you know going back home, and we had we had lost one guy to a uh, wound, you know, to his hand from an IED blast. Where I think it was his thumb or trigger finger that uh, severed, you know, and he got, he had sent home. Um, and this one, this one was was harder on me than the combat engagement because I didn't get to be there with them. Like I, as I had mentioned, we were on each platoon was split into two different patrol sections. I was at a patrol section that was responsible for security at the time, and Garrett had the other section out, and they were they were doing their patrols, but they got sent back they're like go to this house and pick this guy up you know so they're like all right we'll go get that guy so they they go and they grab the guy it was you know it was easy for them no contact or anything kind of just knocked on the door and said hey you're coming with us and grabbed him and packaged him up 
And on their way back, I hit with a massive IED artillery rounds underneath the vehicle. So we had lost the whole crew of the, the point vehicle on that mission. And um, that three guys or four, four. Yeah. I mean, it, and it would have typically been five guys, right. but this truck was uh, outfitted with a crow, a 50 cal with a remote system on it. So the gunner is actually sitting down inside the vehicle. So, so those four guys are out and, you know, you feel absolutely useless there on the radio list, you know, taking the call and trying to retransmit the call back to help and get the, the medevac going. Or how, did you, a, how did you find out they hit an IED? Like where it was reported to us, IED, you know, the contact report was reported through us. So. Gotcha. Did you know immediately what vehicle it was and who was in it? Uh, yeah, when they said the lead, like I, I knew the structure of the of the patrol section, so I knew when they said it was the lead vehicle who it was. So I knew I knew who would be on point on that mission. So yeah, the the, the four guys immediately, even though they did, they didn't have to give their names, they said, you know, the lead vehicle was taken out. So I knew immediately who that was right away. When you guys all consolidate back at the patrol base, uh, what's, what's being said to each other? What did you and, and Garrett have a conversation? I didn't see him for another. I don't think I saw him until the next day or later, you know, like we couldn't pull off the patrol base. They, I think he actually flew out with the guys and ended up at the hospital down in the green zone and the rest of the section went back to Taji. So I, I wasn't relieved for another until the next day and then went back and linked up with the rest of the platoon at Taji. So it had been a, a number of hours by the time we all consolidated. Obviously the rest of the troops are devastated. Uh, how are you helping them put it all back together? I don't even know if I was that helpful with it. And that's, that's a, that's a, a thing that, um, that I look back on. Like I was, I, I don't even know how to explain my mentality at the time. You go into a combat situation expecting loss. You have to, like, that's something you have to accept before you even get into it. And then, um, I also, as a platoon sergeant, didn't want to be seen with any layer of softness, you know, like, so I don't know if it was a good thing or the bad thing that I just tried to maintain my rigidity and discipline and still enforce those same disciplines and rigidity on the guys. Like, I, I don't respect, know. Do you think that was a good idea at the time, knowing what you know now? No, I think I think I should have. Uh, I guess using a, what a coach would do and pull them all together and kind of talk about it instead of what I did was like, you need to get back to the mission. The mission's not over. So. Is there regret in that decision? Yeah, I will. Without, yes. 
So the short answer to that is yes, regret. But then, you know, you, if you want to, you try to live your life without regrets, you know, and, and, and even knowing that, you know, every decision you make, you're not making great decisions all the time. Nobody is. And, that, and nothing that you do is perfect. So I think it's a more of a matter of you look back on that and accept it, own it and understand it. And then don't make decisions. Don't make those same mistakes again. So regretting something is more of a waste than learning from it. So sure. I think I've learned from it, from that and I've become a more understanding and reasonable person in my older age than I was there as a 31-year-old platoon sergeant, you know, just trying to herd cats. What were some of your soldiers saying to you after all this that you just kind of responded with, hey, we got to keep doing the mission? Or were, were, were they not even saying anything? They weren't saying much of anything, you know, and like, and the guys that I was, you know, had the most direct contact with were, of course, the squad leaders. So, and my two t- top squad leaders at the time, like, they, that affected them deeply. And I should have been the guy that was mentoring them through it. Instead, I was the guy that was pushing them to keep going forward. I didn't, I didn't hear their um, concerns the way I should have been hearing them. I wasn't listening well to them. And it, and it affected them to the point like they, they've, their mission effectiveness degraded after that. You know, and I had to, I had to, I had to let them sit back on several rotations. So I think um, I could have, uh, had I listened to them more, but I tried to understand more what they were feeling and how they were dealing with it and been a better leader and guide them through it instead of push them aside and tell them to suck it up. Then I think it would have been more, much more effective. Apologies for my dog. Um, Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, I'm always, it's always a slippery slope to stand on um, because you do the best with with the information you have in the moment, right? You know, I, I ask I ask the question all the time: Would would we have benefited more from, you know, taking a knee? Would we have benefited more from, you know, taking a moment to just give ourselves a day off and decompress and everything? And and you know, we, we sit back and say, yeah, maybe I should have done it then. But at the time, one in two thousand six, we weren't aware like we are now of you know the repercussions of what we were going through. Uh, number two, there was, whether we want to acknowledge it or not, there was a ton of pressure from every level of the military to be successful, right? Because we were foolishly yeah. thinking at some point in time, we were going to end up getting out of there sooner rather than later. Right. That happened. Um, and the sooner we, and the military might say, well, the sooner we finish this, the sooner we'll go home. So all that was at play. Um, and, and with that information, it's just very tough to, 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 to acknowledge and recognize that that might have been an option. Um so I, I want to show you empathy for that reason alone. But, you know, again, uh, I, I think we all could have had different conversations with people if we had known differently. I think that's fair yeah. to say. Yeah. I mean, my first sergeant had tried, he had pulled me aside and was talking to me. And he was, at the time, I didn't appreciate his mentorship the way I should have. Like he was encouraging 
as you as you said there, to take a knee and to take a break and hold off for a minute. And it was me that was pushing, no, if we do that, we're just going to lose our momentum. We have to keep going. We have to stay on our rotations. We got to stay on the mission. We got to continue doing what we kept doing. Otherwise, they win. You know. Was that the only uh, casualties you guys sustained on the on the rest of that deployment? Yeah. That, well, from the troop, we had uh, our first commander there, and we had my four guys, and then or and then the one wounded guy. So five from my platoon, and then um, we had a guy that was just, we were just too like we were rolling up the patrol base and about to hand it over to another. Uh, troop that was replacing us or and they may have been an infantry company i forget what their makeup was but um we had a guy commit suicide there at the patrol base just two weeks out from going home wow yeah so i don't i never got the story on it and like i was in such a bad place like to look back on on the way i saw the world back then like i was a terrible human being or like so not only did I kind of disregard my own guys getting killed and push everybody to, to go forward. But when this guy, this poor kid, whatever he was suffering from committed suicide, I, I was aggressive about it. Like I didn't go to his memorial. I didn't like, like what kind of person does that is what I thought to myself back then, you know, and, and I, and sometimes I hate myself for feeling that way about those guys. You know, like he was, he was clearly suffering from something. He didn't want to go home for whatever reason, you know, and, and that's, that's beyond me to, to even try to pull that out. But I hate to even think about how, how I was back then, you know, and, and the, the mindset that I was in, it's just ridiculous to, to, to treat people like that. Why are you so hard on yourself about this all these years later still? I don't know. I mean, how, I, how should a person be, you know, I think, uh, I think my upbringing was, that's funny. I mean, my wife has asked me the same question. So, and I, and I never have a good answer. Um, I could try to make excuses about, you know, like, um, I consider my upbringing had been in the army, you know, not so much my childhood, but more like I was, I was taught to be who I was by these great leaders, these combat veterans, these tough, these guys who I respected, but for their toughness and their hardness, you know, and uh, I tried to emulate that as a leader. But I think, you know, on, on situations like that, I think I took it too far. And I, and I, I don't know if being hard on myself is, is that that's what pushes me to, to get through things, you know, like get your ass up and get moving, you know, put the ruck on, keep walking, stop whining about it. Well, I, I would default back to what you said before. Um, in a sense, a failure is only a failure if you don't learn from it. A mistake only remains a mistake if you don't adjust. The regret stays a regret unless you sort of uh, are able to to change things going forward. I think you've done a very good job at acknowledging that there were, and I'm not even saying you handled it wrong. All I'm going to say is that you, there's a different way to handle it because there right. for everybody, it's different, right? You're dealing with people and everybody has different feelings and emotions. So there's not a 
right solution to the way you go about doing this sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, in you recognizing that it was wrong, you, you probably deserve a little bit of self-forgiveness and grace that it, you know, was, was that there, there, there was a, a different option, but again, you did the best with what you had with the information in front of you. I don't, I don't think there was somebody, if somebody had been sitting there telling you, Dave, you know, you need to lighten up. Dave, you need to lighten up. Dave, you need to no, there, there was a, probably a lot of lockstep people, including Garrett and some others going, okay, we're going to keep pushing forward. We're going to keep pushing forward because that that's what we did. That's, that's our, that's who we are. Yeah. So, and you know, and that is like, I, we're talking about this 20 years later, right. Or a little less. And so all of that is, you know, all of these years of thinking about it or having a discussion with another guy that experienced something similar, all of that builds on itself. So looking back, I'm like, I don't think like being any easier on myself now is necessarily the right answer. I think I always need to, to I don't know if it's easier. Right. I think it's just giving yourself a little grace. I'm not okay. saying you need to be easier. I'm not saying you need to deprogram who you are. I'm merely saying <laughs> allow yourself a little bit of room and forgiveness that, you know, I was working with what I had. Um, you know, again, I, I could think of a half a dozen examples. If I had different information or if I had done X or if I had done Y, you know, yeah. I would have different results. I have to live with the decisions I made based off of the time that I made them, but I also have to allow myself the ability to understand. Now, again, thankfully for me, you know, nobody, nobody, nobody got killed. Um, and that's not the case for you. And so it's a little bit different, obviously. I mean, I I've been to those memorials. I've been to those ceremonies. I've, I've, I've had other people within the unit I was with get killed. So I, I certainly understand the range of emotions. I don't know. I just, I think that there is a, a, a place where you can sort of find a, a middle ground between not letting up on yourself and, you know, going the complete other direction of, hey, it's all okay, Dave. Yeah, everything is just peaches. And water. You know, like that. that, that there's yeah. a middle ground there for you. I appreciate that. Thank you. So uh, where does the inspiration for the book? I mean, obviously, this deployment is the inspiration for the book, Damn Hooligans, but w- when does it all come together? Because the book was just released this past December. So where does it all come together for you to start to write this thing? Yeah. So I had, we got back and I, I left the unit. I went, you know, went to a different unit. I ended up being, uh, went to be an observer controller at a training center in Hohenfels, Germany. And then um, I was put out on a medical. So years, it's, a number of years went by and I would this like these deployments, especially one that's that busy, you know, and, and you, you're working with these guys closely day in and day out, you know, and, and for days and nights on end, like that's really sticks with you. And I thought about that for years, all the time. And I, you know, I, I haven't really sought out therapy the way I should, I've rejected it more than anything. And, um, and it, I've gone to a few therapists, I would say, but it's just not, I'm not finding the person that I'm willing to share those things with that I, you know, to the degree that I need to. So working through those, those events in my head, thinking about them constantly. And then, um, 
I stayed in contact with Garrett and a couple of the other guys over the years. And we talked about this and then I forget, I don't, it was three or four years ago. I decided I'm going to write a movie about this, not the true story, not a documentary, but create a story where I can work out some of these events and, and these, these happenings. So it ended up, I had uh, studied how to write scripts, uh, wrote it, turned one in, got a bunch of uh, how to do a better guidance back from some pro writers, wrote a second one, turned it into a couple contests, got a couple awards from that, rewrote it based on the guidance from the, the third. The, so the third version of that, it actually, it did very well on a contest circuit. And um, there's a website called Coverfly where you can post script writings and they, they get reviewed and they get put in contests. And it made a, it within the top 14% out of 100,000 projects on there. So I had, had all these aspirations like, oh, this thing is going to get great. It's going to get picked up. But they don't get picked up. I think a lot of directors write their own or they, you know, they have a writer that they, that they pull to, to to write the story. So I had saw an ad to uh, convert your script into a book. You know, we're this company and we provide this service. So I reached out to that company and um, it's a Brilliant Stories Inc. They're, they're movie producers and writers, two of the basis of it is. So they got me linked up with uh, Susan B. Flanagan, who is an Emmy Award winning script writer an international best-selling author, and she co-wrote with me to convert this script into this story. And it was helpful having, a, number one, a female voice and mind looking at this aggressive, gritty, all-male-oriented story. So she brought a little bit of the softness and the emotional piece back into that that I was leaving out because I – you know, I, I guess I'm blocking it out of what I wanted to tell. So she pulled some of that out in this story. I'll ask the big picture question first. How much peace did it give you to write it? How much, uh, you know, did it did it do what it was intended to do and, and allow you to sort of breathe again emotionally about the events that had happened to you? I think so. You know, and it, and it, the buildup of it over over the years, you know, just writing for no reason, and then turning it into the script and into the book, it was all therapeutic. To maybe better than even sitting down and talking to a therapist that has no concept of what it's like to be in combat or to lose people or to realize that you were a total asshole about it, you know, during that whole time anyway. So on top of Losing the people, you're also, you know, a, a part of the problem with other people's recovery, or maybe they're not able to. So. I'm reading a quote here. Uh, I assume it's from the book. Uh, I found it online, but uh, tell me if I'm wrong here. But it sounds like after talking to you, this is definitively in the book. And it says, don't thank me for my service. I didn't give it to you. I gave it to my country, my family, my friends who served beside me, some of whom died in the process. Don't thank me for unquestionably obeying orders, injuring and killing other humans and destroying infrastructure, businesses, homes, and the environment. 
Don't thank me when you don't understand the implications of combat. Um, why don't we want to thank you? Why don't you deserve thanks? I don't, well, I mean, I don't feel like my, I didn't do it as a favor to anybody, right? So don't, like, I didn't, I didn't hand somebody something and say, hey, here you go. Here's your box of freedom. You know, you're welcome. I, didn't, I don't felt like I did that. By the anybody. way, they give you a box of freedom when you get home. They're like, hey, here's a yellow ribbon box. And it's got all these great, that, yeah, you actually get, those are some things like, you get a box of freedom when you get home. They, they give it to us. So, you know, we, yeah, so. we get a box of freedom on the way back. You know, so I got a little flag and a coin. It's fantastic. <laughs> I apologize. It was just funny that you said that. Nobody gave yeah, you a box being, Got it. Being thanked. Like I, I know I'm not the only one that feels this way. Like there's, there's almost a movement going on among veterans, among combat veterans. Like, I don't feel comfortable for someone to say, thank you for your service. You know, I don't. I don't feel like I provided them with anything. I would rather them thank their teacher, you know, that's teaching their kids how to do things. You know, their teachers are doing a lot more than what I feel I did, you know, in, in engaging or, or assisting um, the Americans in, you know, just becoming better people. Like we didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't join because uh, I saw it had some great draw toward patriotism. You know, I, I stayed in because, you know, I was having a good time with it. And they were, I was doing things that I enjoyed doing. Um, I mean, listen, thank you for your service is always a little bit weird, awkward, uncomfortable. I, I get it. I just say thank you. How do you even respond to that? When say, say, hey, say thank you and keep moving. You know, like, let's not draw this whole thing out. Uh, I don't. I don't stop anybody and, and reprimand them for thanking me. I'm just like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just th- thank you. Yeah, but but again, I, I you know when I read the quota, it feels like there is some of that is tied to the loss that you experienced because had you not experienced that loss, if that IED doesn't hit them and those four of of your soldiers don't don't die, I, I feel like this still and at least talking to you, that statement isn't written in the book. You might have a great book and you might have a great story, a, a whole bunch of other things went on and everything else, but. You know, I, I it, it feels like they're linked. Yeah, and, and I think you're right about that. So I probably wouldn't feel the way I feel about that had the, those losses not happened. You know, like if we if we came out of there with no losses and then it would have felt like a big win, then we get to come home heroes. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So, but with the losses. There's no win in that at all. You know, you can, you can accomplish this many missions and you can, you can do this and you can catch these bad guys and you can kill those bad guys, but you, you're one loss in your unit. Like you're, there's no win from that. Is there homage in the book to those losses at all and those individuals? Only in the, t- the telling of that that story, you know, and it's all fictionalized. So it's like, and I, when I, I told you, you know, like prior to the recording, we're fictionalized on purpose because part of it, part of that is people's memories are are terrible. Like when I started putting this together, pulling the story together to write the first script, 
and I was talking to a buddy of mine and like, we weren't remembering the way things happened the same way. So, and it's only because we're, we're dealt with those from two different perspectives. You know, he dealt with it from a, from a lower ranking guy, you know, he had a perspective on what was happening. And I, I, as a leader of this platoon had a, a perspective on how that was happening, you know, or what was being felt, you know, or, or how things were going. So, Right away, I was like, well, there's no way this is a true story if the two of us can't even agree on. on well, I would argue from doing this show for a very long time and talking to several people from the same battle who might be within 10 meters of each other, it's a completely different perspective. Right. That's the human yeah, so. experience. That, that's, a, you know, you can view the same thing happening in a different way. And yes, there might be some sort of, dialogue about well this happened first and this happened second or you know this happened second this happened first kind of deal but in reality that is just an individual's perception of combat and what they're taking in as priority in those moments um what draws their attention and 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 uh solicits emotion i mean everything about combat solicits emotion but what i mean is you know uh you you tend to get laser focused on one thing at a time in combat whatever it is that is usually causing you the most threat um but you know, beyond that, I, I would just say I think that that may be, may be part of it, not that there can't be any truth somewhere in the middle. Right. Yeah, and a lot of – there are a lot of other uh, guys that were involved in books or movies or whatever that are under a lot of scrutiny right now because of the, how true the story was or what they said wasn't true in there. And I, be, I want to believe on their behalf that with their perception of that was the truth to them you know that's how they remembered it right but that's the hard part of like if you come out and you say like well this is a true story you know this is the way it happened um i I abandoned that early on in in the the building of this story coming to terms with you know like shit maybe i'm not remembering this the way it should be and then some of also some of the feedback you know that i was getting from the script they're like there are too many characters you got to cut it down you know, so that made it actually easier on me to take 37 characters, you know, guys and, and condense it down into one patrol of 20 guys, you know, and I still had people telling me it's too many, too many to keep right. up with. I wasn't willing to go smaller than that. So as far as paying homage to those guys, I, did, I don't know if I could, if I, if I would have done it properly anyway. So I, I, I kind of a, I held off on that as far as a dedication to or an in memory of or anything like that. I just kept it. This is a fiction based on a period of time. Right. What do you want people to get out of the book? First, I mean, I would like for you, if somebody was reading it like they're, A shared experience, you know, like there, like there are a lot of guys that had similar experiences than what we had over there. And I'm, ho- I'm hoping that some of those uh, veterans that were over there can read that and go like, oh, yeah, I remember when some something like that happened. Or I remember a guy just like this guy or, yeah, my turf, you know, acted the same way or did the same shit. Or, you know, even the characters in the platoon, like, oh, yeah, that's a funny dude. I remember, you know, the guy in my platoon's name was was this. So. That's more that's like more about entertainment, but then on the other side of that, like trigger some of those thoughts and think back on the decisions that were made. 
it's a, especially as a leader, you know, like some of the soldiers, they're not going to reflect back on decisions they made. They're, they're doing what they were trained to do or, or what they were told to do. But um, the small unit leaders that were engaged in combat, I hope that they can look back and, and think about decisions they made and think about how they grew as a leader while they were there, you know? I know you haven't been able to give yourself much grace from the book, but, um, you know, where do you sit now when you go to bed at night uh, and, and how much of this still stays with you? The, uh, the deployment or the book? Both. Okay. Well, I mean, the weird thing about like that, and, and I had rejected like the idea of PTSD for a number of years and I, I had been screened for it and uh, it never came up. Nobody ever said like, Hey, you have post-traumatic stress disorder, but I, I don't think anybody that goes through combat comes out of it without it. You know, it's a tra- just driving down the road is a traumatic event, you know, on a, the sunniest day, it, you have and nothing happens it's still traumatic to the degree like you're just you're ready to respond so i don't think anybody can walk out of there and say like they weren't affected uh traumatically by that so i i literally i had to really think on this and see if it was true but i do have some thought about it every day you know whether it's uh thinking about the, the guys that have been killed or thinking about some you know some funny thing that somebody said or did or um i just had a trip to i spent a couple weeks in mexico you know and and, uh, not at a resort or anything so we we had a rental car and we stayed in the city and we were kind of driving around and so many of the small villages there reminded me that the the small villages in iraq you know so you have places built out of concrete blocks a goat in the yard dirt and sand and, and some, you know, random vegetation around. But, um, that, it's just, a, you know, just a random thought like, oh, yeah, we're driving through. This is exactly like so-and-so village over there. So. Well, I mean, what are some of the conversations that you and Garrett have had since? I mean, you know he's as empathetic a guy as you can, you can find. Uh, and again, Garrett Cathcart, uh, forget what episode he was. I'll have to go look it up, but you know, he's a previous guest and a personal friend, uh, of mine, but you know, again, when you got, when, when you started to be able to peel back the layer of this onion, what were, what were the conversations about? So he, it turns into like, I know that he felt a lot of, uh, responsibility, for those guys' death because it was his patrol that was with them. And I know um, one of the squad, the squad leader that was with him on that, in that same patrol was the same thing. And he did, they actually kind of distanced himself from everybody else. But when Garrett and I talk about, it, I think uh, Garrett actually has a healthier outlook on it than I do, even though he took on some of the responsibility of it. Um but I, and and my thoughts on this are are very recent. Like I spent a, 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 a like a number of years just 
you know, with that same mindset, uh, we did the right thing by pushing forward and not talking about it. I don't want to talk about it. I don't need to talk about it with anybody. That was combat and it happened. But it's, it's only in, you know, I'd say the recent five or six years that I've started. Uh, I think you used the term unboxing it. Yeah. So. I mean, listen, I, I, I'm right there with you. You know, I, I waited. It's not that I rejected the idea of PTSD. I just didn't think I had it. I, I, I never thought it was something that was there until I started having a lot of in-depth conversations like the one we're having right now and recognizing, you know, I kind of deal with the same things. I kind of feel the same way. I kind of react the same way. And then you start to like really get overwhelmed after being hit over the head with a hammer a couple of, you know, hundred times by yeah. hearing the stories over and over again. I'm like, yeah, that, that sounds a lot like me. Maybe I should go investigate this. And, and, you know, I, I've said this before several times, there are days I wish I never unboxed anything because, you know, it was fine where it was. It was packed away and nothing ever bothered it. And it didn't bother me. And it stayed packed away in a closet. Um, but you realize that the behaviors that you're going through and the things that you're going through are going to persist until you open that box and figure out what's in there. Uh, yeah. and it's not easy. So, you know, uh, it's a day at a time kind of thing. It's a, it's a journey, not a destination. It's, you know, all these things are, are, are continual and you have to learn to sort of live with it and manage it and not try to beat it because much as you've learned, sometimes when you try too hard to get something that uh, isn't for you, <laughs> You end up with a lot of uh, a lot of frustration and, and, and anxiety more than anything else. Yeah, I think uh, one of the things that I, I struggled with the most and continue to to some degree is that uh, when you're tying an, an emotion to an event, right? So in the army, even prior to this combat deployment, like it, I don't think this this one deployment triggered this. I think it was compounded over, you know, I think thirteen or fourteen years before I went to combat actually was um, you can replace your emotions with anger and get through it much easier than you can actually addressing the emotion you're having. So the loss of those guys was sadness, but you can, I can replace that with anger and I can take it out on patrol and be successful because I can take it back to the, to the enemy and I can take it out on them. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and re so that, that, and then that carries on, you know, and I'm only recently like starting to address it. It's okay to feel sad, yep. you know, and it's okay to even, you know, have some loneliness or whatever, but I've, I've had a, my biggest issue was like replacing all of these emotions with anger and, and I can get mad at it and get mad at you. And then I can push through, you know, and, and in the end I'll be, successful because i made it through this adversity by getting mad at it but it, it, it doesn't work no uh and i will say this much for you um you know you're incredibly honest with yourself uh and and have been incredibly honest with me uh and and that, that is something that's not always easy to to get to you've clearly acknowledged several times your failures and your mistakes and things that have gone wrong and um you know you you've you've shown at least the, the want to and desire to flip those things into something better. Uh, and that's, that's not an easy place to get to. So I, I commend you for it. Um, you know, your candor and your honesty is, is, is refreshing and, and I'm glad you're able to do it because it's easy to tell a story by glossing over some of those things as opposed to hitting it straight on. 
Yeah, I appreciate that. I don't, I don't know how to respond really to you, but oh, look, I mean, you know, it, it, I appreciate it. That's enough. I, I don't think there's a more more of a detailed answer. Um, but I do think again that um, there is some more grace you probably can show yourself just from telling 300 plus of these stories. I, I, I have a sense of of you know where the spectrum is um, and and what people have dealt with. By no means am I a psychiatrist psychologist say anything i'm just a just a, a friend and a, and a guy who's who's heard a lot of these things and and, and just kind of understands the the challenge that's in front of you um but you know again uh I, I think the writing helps i think the talking helps and and i love the concept of the book and, and the movie i think it's great again it's called damn hooligans um about your 2006 deployment to iraq and I suggest everybody gets it, um, picks it up, reads it, and, and uses it as, as their own personal sounding board for what's going on in their head. But there's entertainment value there as well with the book. Yeah. Well, look, again, it's it's great to talk to you. I'm glad that Garrett connected us. I'm glad that you were so willing to share your story and, and, and tell all these things. Um, and, and, again, I think it's remarkable. I, I would never use the word failure with you because I don't think you failed. Uh, and anything. I, I think you've tried and you've learned and you've grown and you've advanced and everything else. So despite not achieving certain things, uh, despite not bringing everybody home safely, I don't think it, 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 that failure would ever be a word that I would come into my mind to describe anything that you've discussed today. Um, I, I think it's about learning and, and, and about growing and you, that that's the path that you're on. And I think it's perfect. Yeah. And it, you know, it just takes so many years to to let that really sink in. Yes. Because you know, like, because we're conditioned to a certain way of thinking. You know, you're you either succeeded or you failed, right? And well, especially and, in the military, right? It's go no oh, go. Yeah, go or no go. Pass or fail, and that's it. And and you're sort of inextricably tied to one side or the other, no matter what happens. But again, uh, when you're dealing with humans and people and situations that don't uh, aren't written down in in a manual somewhere in a, in a DA or a DOD or a DA PAM, whatever the hell you call it, you know, it's totally different. So again, I, I, I give yourself some grace, brother. Trust me, you've earned it. You deserve it. Um, you just keep, you keep the memories, you keep the memories strong. You don't have to let the, the, the loss be forgotten. Uh, you honor them and, 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 uh, it, it's fair to say that, uh, they would forgive you as well. So uh, they they were doing their job like you were doing yours as Garrett was doing his and everybody else's. We all accept that responsibility. Uh, and, and if it's one thing we learn is that we don't push that responsibility off on anybody else, right? right. Everybody has a job to do. They were doing theirs. You were doing yours. I did mine. And, uh, you know, find that sweet spot where, where it all, you know, is, is at peace for you. All right. Yeah. Again, great to talk to you, David. Thank you so much for your time. Again, Damn Hooligans is the book. Go check it out. Uh, we'll throw it up on our website, hazardground.com as well. You guys can get a link to it there. Certainly appreciate the time, brother. Great to get to know you, and uh, best of luck going forward. Thanks, Mark. All right, David Hollis, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.
We'll see you next time. 